Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here. And I have a question for you this morning. What makes a person carry a cross? What makes a person carry a cross? Because I don't know about you, but like carrying a cross does not sound particularly fun or easy. I can think of about 500 things that I would rather do this morning. So what in the world makes a person carry a cross? Now, I know even in saying that and asking that question, I'm using a little bit of churchy language. So if you're not tracking with me, uh, let me illustrate it by giving you three quick stories of people who quote unquote carried crosses. Here's story number one. This guy is named C.T. Studd. Now, C.T. Studd was the most famous athlete in England in the late 1800s. Last name Studd, like not bad, right? You're kind of destined to grow into that. And he was basically the Michael Jordan of cricket. Try to put yourself in that headspace for just a second, totally different world. But like C.T. said, he had it all. And then all of a sudden, he gave it all up. He left all the athletic glory, all the fame, all the riches, all the wealth behind. And he went and he spent his life taking the good news of Jesus to places where people had never heard it before. Why would a person like that carry a cross? Here's story number two. This guy's name is David Livingston. David Livingston was basically like a real life Indiana Jones. He was like, except he was like even smarter, even cooler and not played by an elderly Harrison Ford. Can I get an amen this morning? Yeah, Um, but I mean, David Livingston was absolutely brilliant. He was a scientist, he was a doctor, he was an explorer, he was an adventurer and he was a passionate follower of Jesus. Now it would have been really easy for Livingston to stay home in Scotland and just get rich, make all kinds of money doing all these careers that he was so good at. And yet because he was a follower of Jesus, he spent his life going places in Africa where nobody had ever gone before so that they could know Jesus. Why would a person like that carry a cross? Here's story number three. This isn't a great picture, but these are Amish people in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You might remember this story from October the 2nd, 2006, when Charles Roberts IV walked into a one-room Amish schoolhouse and shot 10 little Amish girls before turning the gun on himself. Five of those girls died. And in the immediate aftermath of that shooting, what did that Amish community do? Yes, they comforted each other, but that very day, within hours of this happening, they also went and they found Charles Roberts' family. They found his widow and they found his kids and they comforted them and they raised money for them. Why in the world? Why would people carry a cross on a day like that? It's a tough question. And it's a question we're going to attempt to tackle together today. Like Eric said, we're jumping back into our series through the gospel according to Mark. Now, let me just recap in case you've been traveling here and there this summer. We spent all summer walking through the life of a guy named David from the Old Testament. The Old Testament's that first section of your Bible before the birth of Jesus. And David was this great king in the Old Testament. We walked through his life and God had made this promise to David saying, hey, David, you're a man after my own heart. And so somebody from your family is going to sit on the throne forever. 
awesome promise. And David gets to the end of his life. He passes the baton to his son. His son passes the baton to his grandson, but his family kind of just keeps messing it up worse and worse. And eventually the kingdom gets overthrown and there's nobody as king over Israel. And so at the end of David's story, we're left wondering how in the world is God gonna keep this promise? Who is this king going to be? And we spent the whole first half of this year walking through the first half of the gospel according to Mark, which just tells us the stories of Jesus's life. And we walked through those first eight chapters together. We ended on Easter Sunday. And today we're gonna jump back into the gospel of Mark and spend most of the rest of the year walking through those last eight chapters. And you might remember, if you don't, that's okay. I'm not gonna be mad. We've all slept since then. But you might remember we spent the whole first half of this year asking two main questions as we walk through the gospel of Mark. And the first one is this, who is this man? This is the question Mark wants you to ask as you're reading these stories from Jesus's life. This is the story we asked together on Easter Sunday from Mark chapter eight, verses 27 through 29, which says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And his disciples replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who, who do you say that I am? And that's Jesus's question for you this morning. Not who do people say that I am? Like not what your uncle Louie told you, not what your parents thought, not what you heard growing up. Like who do you say that he is? Who is this man? And of course, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. Now, that's a word that gets thrown around a lot in church. It's a Hebrew word. It means anointed. The Greek equivalent is Christ. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the Messiah. It just means anointed. Now, if you'll remember back on the series through the life of David this summer, who is anointed? Kings are anointed, right? Like David was. And so when we say Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, we're saying, Jesus, you are the anointed, promised deliverer king. Jesus, you are the king who's fulfilling God's promise to David, who's gonna sit on the throne forever. Jesus is the one true king. That's our answer. Who is this man? Jesus is the one true king. And so question number two that we asked then at the beginning of the year is if that's true, if Jesus is the one true king, then what is this gospel? What is the good news that King Jesus came to bring? And my guess is that if you asked a lot of people what that gospel, that good news is, you'd hear a bunch of different answers, but most of them would be variations on the same theme. Something along the lines of, if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then you get to go be in heaven when you die. And that is good and that is true and that is a big, wonderful part of the gospel, but that is not all of the gospel. So what is this gospel? We saw it in Mark chapter one. Jesus himself tells us that after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. And what is the gospel, Jesus? The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So if you say, hey, Jesus, what's the good news? He'd say the kingdom of God has come near. Now, if you're already halfway through your Sunday morning sermon nap, okay, tune back in with me if I've lost you here for just a second, because this is not just a theoretical, abstract, theological discussion. This has dramatic, real world implications on how you live and lead your family. And here's why, because the message we believe determines the people we become. The message you believe determines the person you become. 
So if for you, the good news is like, let's play with this, right? If the good news is that the shopping mall is at hand, then we will produce shoppers. And if the good news is that the television is at hand, we will produce couch potatoes. And if the good news is that the revolt is at hand, then we will produce warriors. And if the good news is that the once a week Sunday morning pep talk and music show is at hand, then we will produce consumers. But if the good news really is that the kingdom of God is at hand, then we must produce citizens of that kingdom who will bow to the one true king and live in that kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Are you with me this morning? Okay. So who is this man? Question number one, Jesus is the one true king. What is this gospel? The good news is that the kingdom of God has come near. Now, that's the whole point of the first half of Mark's gospel that we walked through this year. In fact, you could just summarize Mark chapters one through eight in this one little sentence that the point is, Jesus is the Christ. That's the whole point of the first half of the gospel of Mark. It splits really cleanly into, into two halves. And the whole point of the first half is that Jesus is the Christ. It culminates with that great moment we spent on Easter Sunday. Peter saying, yes, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so now Jesus has followers and they're looking around. They're thinking, okay, yeah, all right. God's fulfilled his promise to David. The Messiah, the Christ is here. Jesus is the one true king. Awesome. He's bringing the kingdom. Yes, that is good news. Now let's go overthrow the Romans. Let's get some deliverance going on. And they're probably looking around thinking, man, Jesus is gonna make a good king. I mean, think about it. The dude can walk on water. That's gonna come in handy in a naval battle. <laughs> Just saying, like, the dude, I mean, like, he can heal the sick. That's gonna be good for like helping the wounded, you know, after this. He can raise the dead. Our army's gonna be invincible. Did you see what he did with five loaves and two fish? Imagine what he can do if you give the man an industrial kitchen. Some chariots, an army, you know, swords. Which is why what happens next is so shocking. Mark chapter eight continues. It says, Jesus then began to teach them that the son of man, that's him, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this and well, Peter, <laughs> he took him aside and began to rebuke him. By the way, when you think about rebuking Jesus, don't, okay? <laughs> um, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He went on and here's what he said to Peter. He said, get behind me, <laughs> Satan. Did Jesus call you Satan this week? You had a better week than Peter did. Good job. All right, okay. He said, he said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. What in the world just happened? <laughs> Jesus just called Peter Satan. It's not like Peter was some enemy who's trying to come like nail him to the cross or something. Like this is Peter. This is like the kind of the leader of the 12, one of Jesus's best earthly friends, one of the inner three. This is Peter. Jesus has given Peter already the nickname saying, you are the rock. Earlier when all the crowds are abandoning Jesus and Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, what about you guys? Are you gonna leave too? It's Peter who steps up and says, where else can we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's a good answer. It's Peter who walks on water. It's Peter that when Jesus looks at the disciples and say, what about you guys? Who do you say that I am? Peter's the one who steps up and says those words that we've all been saying when we got baptized for hundreds of years. Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. This is Peter. And now Jesus calls him Satan. 
What's happening? Well, rewind back to the beginning of the year. You might remember that right as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he was baptized by his cousin John the Baptist. And as Jesus comes up out of the water, God the Father speaks down from heaven. And he affirms Jesus saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes on Jesus as a dove. And do you remember what the very first thing the Holy Spirit does for Jesus is? Sends him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit sends Jesus off into the desert and Jesus spends 40 days in the desert fasting. And while he's out there, the devil comes out to tempt Jesus in his moment of weakness. And the whole point of those temptations was that the devil was trying to keep Jesus off of the cross. The devil's trying to get Jesus to take a shortcut to kingship. And so he'd whisper to Jesus, hey, you know, Jesus, you don't, I mean, you don't really have to trust for God to provide for you, right? I mean, you can just, you can turn those stones into bread if you want to. Oh, Jesus, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to do the slow, painstaking, step-by-step, humble work of trying to establish your Messiahship in a way that everybody will understand. Just jump off the temple, the angels will catch you, then everybody will know you're the king. Oh, Jesus, <laughs> I mean, yeah, we, we, we know you're the king, but you don't have to die on the cross to prove it, just bow down to me real quick. I'll give it all to you. Then everybody will accept you and approve you and affirm you. And yet Jesus resisted that temptation in the desert, the temptation to stay off of the cross. And he resists it again now here. And he says, Peter, get, get behind me, Satan. So if the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark could be summarized by saying Jesus is the Christ, then the next eight chapters could be summarized by saying the Christ is headed for a cross. That now that we know who Jesus is, now we're going to see what Jesus has come to do. We're calling this sermon the mission of the Christ. For the last eight chapters, we're going to see what the mission of King Jesus is. And it's quite simply that he is heading for a cross. And listen, that's pretty easy for us to understand, right? We grew up seeing crosses hanging on the walls and hanging on people's ears and plastered on people's bumpers, right? We know that Jesus died on the cross. Ask anybody. But let's have a little sympathy before we throw too many stones at Peter. Because I can't imagine how hard this would have been for him to understand. You see, in Jewish thought, nobody could imagine the Messiah dying. I mean, especially on a cross. The cross was the most excruciating, humiliating means of execution ever invented. It was the clearest symbol that your revolution had failed and that your wannabe kingship was over. And so if Jesus is saying here, yeah, I'm the king, but I'm also going to die on a cross. That's like, um, let's paint a a hypothetical here. Um, Let's say that somebody comes up to you, an entrepreneur, and they are wanting you to invest in their startup company. Imagine that you're a venture capitalist like Shark Tank style, right? And so this entrepreneur comes up to you and they say, hey, guess what? We've started this amazing new business. It's about to take off. We've got already a few awesome investors, but I'm gonna give you the once in a lifetime opportunity to get in on the ground floor and ride the rocket all the way to the top. And you're thinking, Okay, that sounds pretty good. Tell me about your business plan. And and the entrepreneur says, okay, well, here's our business plan. It's to get really deep in debt and then stay in the red and never make a profit and lose every dollar. And then we all end up living on the street together. What do you think? And you'd be thinking, well, like what what in the world? Like why would I sign up for that? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. 
And so when Jesus says, hey, Peter, I'm the king and I'm going to die on the cross, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would I want to join a failed revolution? And yet what Jesus is doing here for Peter is he's, he's pushing him to a point of decision. And it's not just a decision for Peter, it's a decision for you and me too. It's the same point that we all get pushed to. And the core question of that decision is this. Do you want the real Jesus or just your idea of him? That was the thing Peter had to get over here. Do you want the real Jesus or just your idea of him? Um, And this isn't really just between you and your relationship with God. This is really the question of every human relationship, isn't it? Because it's really easy for me to love my idea of somebody. And it's a whole lot harder for me to love the real person, right? Like with all their quirks and all their idiosyncrasies and all the things they do that I wish they wouldn't do, right? Can we just be honest with each other this morning? It's easier to love my idea of somebody than it is for me to love the real person. And of course, like in my best moments, I wanna love my real kids for who they really are and not just my idea of who I want them to be. And this is why for marriage, like so many people, that first year of marriage is pretty tough, isn't it? Because all of a sudden, oh, uh, my idea of who I thought you were and then who you really are, there's a little bit of dissonance right there and we're experiencing this and there's a little bit of tension there. And yet, of course, like I wanna love the real Rebecca and not just my idea of who she should be. And I wanna love my real neighbor and not just my idea of my neighbor. And I wanna love the real and living God and not just my idea of who I think God is, right? Because at best, my ideas about God fall short of his glory. And at worst, they are completely and totally misguided. So I want the real Jesus. Do you want the real Jesus or just your idea of him? And if you say, yeah, okay, sign me up. I want the real Jesus. Then the way you get there, the way Jesus is gonna help tear apart those ideas of him so that you can have the real thing, the way Jesus gets there is often through pain. And that's what he does for Peter here. He pushes Peter to this moment of conflict, a conflict of wills. If you're anything like me and you don't have a perfect faith, then maybe you've asked the question before, like how do I know that I have a real relationship with the real and living God? And one of the ways that you can know you have a real relationship with the real God is that he breaks your expectations. Because if you're just worshiping your idea of God, an idol, an idol will never contradict you. An idol is just a projection of your own desires. A counterfeit God will never tell you no. But the real Jesus, let me tell you, he'll tell you no all the time. And so, man, if you're wondering, like, do I have a real relationship with the real Jesus? Let's just ask some probing questions a little bit. Let's let's dig a little deeper this morning. Is your idea of what you want Jesus to do for you perhaps standing in the way of what the real Jesus wants to do in you? When is the last time that you let God's word reshape your thinking? like that you legitimately reorganized your ideas around the Bible? When's the last time that your will and God's will came in conflict and you let God win? When is the last time 
that Jesus disappointed you and shattered your dreams and called you to something that was different than what you wanted. It's hard, but sometimes that's how you know that you have a real faith in a real Jesus and not just your idea of him. And that's actually good news. Jesus knows what's best for us because here's the thing. My idea of Jesus won't save anybody. But the real Jesus can save everybody, right? And listen, I don't know what kind of state of mind you're in this morning, but I know this morning I rolled out of bed and I woke up desperately in need of him to save me. Anybody else? Like I need God's mercy today. (laughs) And I'm so thankful that his mercies are new every morning. I need a real and living savior. I need the real and living one true king to actually rescue me, not just my ideas about him. And if he is the one true king, and if he really did go to the cross, then that's good news. That means uh, the old preacher, Haddon Spur- Charles Haddon Spurgeon, used to say it like this. He said, I have a great need for Christ, and I have a great Christ for my need. Church, that's good news. I don't know if you heard that. <laughs> I have a great need for Christ. Anybody else? Am I alone today? And the good news is you have a great Christ for your need. The real Jesus. And in case you haven't heard, but even if you have, can I just remind you of how great he is? Christ's holiness is great enough to cover all of your unrighteousness. And Christ's mercy is great enough to forgive all of your sins. And Christ's patience is great enough to bear with your slow obedience And Christ's wisdom is great, enough to guide you through every confusion. And Christ's power is great, enough to strengthen your every weakness. Christ's comfort is great, enough to heal every sorrow. And Christ's joy is great, enough to brighten even your darkest days. And Christ's goodness is great, enough to satisfy you even when the things of this world disappoint. And Christ's love is great, enough for you to rest in even when you feel unlovable and worthless. And Christ's faithfulness is great to sustain you even on the hard days until that glorious day that he comes again. Church, I've got a great need for Christ this morning and we've got a great Christ for our need. And if he is the real one true king who really did die and rise again, Spurgeon goes on to say it like this. He says, what the sun is to the day and what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus Christ to us. What bread is to the hungry and clothes to the naked and the shadow of a great rock to the traveler in a weary land, such is Jesus Christ to us. Can I get an amen this morning? Good grief, I wish I could preach like that, man. Let me steal the words of the Apostle Paul this morning because he's a pretty good preacher. Man, if you ever wonder if you're gonna make it, Christ in you is your hope of glory. And when you're weak, you can fall back on him who's able to do immeasurably more than all you can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within you. And when your mind is just racked with anxiety, You can have the peace of God which transcends all understanding that'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And when you are grieving, even in that darkness, you can know that even then your comfort can still abound through Christ. 
and when you're confused and when you have questions, you can come to Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And when you feel the pain of a fragmented society and a dramatic family and broken relationships and division, you can still experience supernatural unity in the church because Christ is all and is in all. And when you are lonely and when you are lost and when you are rejected and when you're full of doubt and when you're weak in faith and when you blew it again this week, you can still go home and you can lay your head on your pillow tonight and you can sleep in peace knowing that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, I have a great need for Christ (laughs) and I have a great Christ for my need. And so if this is true, like if Jesus is the one true king, and if he actually did something crazy like going to the cross, that's good news for us. But the text doesn't end there. Mark goes on to write this in verses 34 through 38. It says, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, and everybody's like sitting on the edge of their seat saying, pick me, pick me, like I wanna join the army, you know? He says, okay, you must deny yourselves. And take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He says, if anyone's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. So here's the point. If we're breaking this down into three main things, like Jesus is the Christ, the Christ is headed for a cross, and Christians go with him. That's as Jesus says. He said, yeah, I'm the king, and I'm headed for a cross, and I want you to come with me. And that's tough. If you are going to bear the name of Christ, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus today, and you are a Christian, like a little Christ, then you're not just called to bear his name, you're also called to bear his cross. Now, um, I know that's a little bit of a confusing analogy and maybe you've picked up the Bible before and you've like tried to read it and start this thing and you're thinking like, I have, like I'm gonna just pick a text, right? He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. It's like, what in the world does that mean? How am I supposed to apply that to my life, right? Well, here's, here's the thing. If you're just brand new to reading your Bible, there's really only one basic question that you need to ask to understand and apply scripture. I just want you to ask this question. If I took this text seriously, what would have to change? If I took this text seriously, what would have to change? Because following Jesus is all just about hearing him and then obeying, hearing and obeying. If you took it seriously, what would have to change? Let's ask that about this text. If you took this seriously, that you want the real Jesus to be your real king, what would have to change? And Jesus says the first thing is, you gotta deny yourself. And now that is gonna run directly counter to everything you're gonna hear the rest of this week because the world's gonna tell you, indulge yourself and be true to yourself and love yourself and do whatever's gonna make yourself happy. And that sounds really nice and it sounds like freedom, but it's actually prison. Um, Back in the 14th century, there was a duke in Belgium by the name of Reynald III. And Reynald III, he got in a fight with his younger brother, Edward, and so they went to war against each other. And the little brother, Edward, actually ended up defeating his older brother, Reynald. But instead of killing Reynald, he actually just devised a plan for how to imprison his older brother, Reynald. You see, Reynald was obese, 
And so Edward had a room built around Reynald and he promised him that he would be able to regain his title and his property as soon as he was able to leave the room. And for a normal sized person, it wouldn't have been difficult. The room had normal sized windows, it had a door that was near normal sized, and yet in order to fit through that door to regain his freedom, Reynald was gonna have to lose some weight. And yet the catch was that every day, Edward sent Reynald a variety of delicious foods. And instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald just got bigger and bigger. People accused Edward of being cruel toward his brother, and, and he said, listen, my brother's not a prisoner, he can leave whenever he wants. And Reynold ended up staying in that room for 10 years. Eventually, he was let out of the room when Edward died in battle, but his health was so bad that he died within the year as a prisoner of his own appetite. And so because Jesus knows what's best for you, he says, deny yourself for the sake of freedom. St. Augustine said it like this. He said, there can only be two basic loves, the love of God unto the forgetfulness of self or the love of self unto the forgetfulness and denial of God. If you're gonna do the first command of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it does mean you have to deny yourself. If you're gonna take this seriously, if you're gonna change some stuff to make that happen, that's a scary thing. It runs counter to all of our inclinations, doesn't it? And yet it really is an invitation to an incredible adventure. John Stott says this, he says, hey, if you wanna live a life of easygoing self-indulgence, whatever you do, do not become a Christian. But if you want a life of self-discovery, deeply satisfying to the nature that God has given you, if you want a life of adventure in which you have the privilege of serving him and your fellow men, if you want a life in which to express something of the overwhelming gratitude that you are beginning to feel for him who died for you, Stott says, then I would urge you to yield your life without reserve and without delay to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you were gonna take that seriously, what would have to change? Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And that's really hard and it still seems a little bit abstract. So let's envision it like this. The writer A.W. Tozer, he describes this whole command like this. He says, in every Christian's heart, There's a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne until he puts himself on the cross. And if he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps, he says, this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. Tozer says, we want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. (laughs) No cross for us, no, no dethronement, no dying for me today. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and we wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. Oh, don't you wish you could write like that? <laughs> but man, it rings true, doesn't it? I mean, every day I wake up and it's like, okay, today, am I gonna sit on the throne and say that everybody around me exists to serve me and help me and do what I need and, and make me happy and get me what I want? Or am I gonna get on the cross today and say, no, that I exist to serve and to bless those around me for, for their good like Jesus has done for me. This is a hard teaching. And, and keep in mind that as Mark is writing this, uh, this is not like a metaphorical spiritual cross he's talking about. Mark is writing this to first century believers who are really gonna face persecution. And he's really saying to them, hey, get ready to hop up on the cross. Get ready to die for him rather than to deny him. It's a hard teaching. That's why Jesus said, this is a narrow road, only if you find it. 
And so I'm not getting really specific today, I'll own that, in terms of how to apply this and what you should do. I'm just gonna trust that the Holy Spirit's gonna convict your heart and prick your heart in the direction it needs to go. But my challenge for you is to trust the one true king who went to the cross for you and to follow him and to deny yourself and to hop up on the cross with him. Let's circle back to our original question. Why would a person carry a cross? And the only answer I can come up with is because he carried one for me. Why would we carry the cross? Because he did it first. Let's circle back to those three stories we started with. You remember C.T. Studd, the Michael Jordan of cricket? The guy who spent the rest of his life in China and in India and in Africa telling people about Jesus who gave it all up. Why in the world would he do that? C.T. Studd said this. He said, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Like if you're looking for a life motto, that's not a bad place to start. It's awesome, right? He wrote this also, C.T. Studd said this, maybe you've heard this quote, he said, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. And those weren't just pretty words that rhyme. He lived those words. Why would he do that? Why would he give it all up? Why would he leave the fame, leave the glory, leave the money, leave his home? Why would a person carry that kind of cross? He tells us in his own words, C.T. Studd said, well, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. We carry the cross because he carried one for us. What about David Livingstone, the, the Indiana Jones guy, the doctor, the scientist, explorer who went boldly to Africa where nobody had ever gone before. He did it for Jesus so that people could come to know about Jesus. And this was his prayer. He said, God, send me anywhere, only go with me. Lay any burden on me, only sustain me. And sever any tie in my heart except the tie that binds my heart to yours. Those are pretty good words to chisel on your tombstone. And that may sound like you're getting ready to embark on this great life of adventure. But please understand, David Livingston suffered. He spent most of his life wandering around in the jungle, often alone, sick, ravaged with fever, sometimes delirious. He was attacked by a lion, got bit on the arm, lost the use of that arm. His wife died on the mission field. And one time Livingston was back in Britain and somebody came up to them and they said to him, Dr. Livingston, why in the world would you do this? Do you ever feel like you've sacrificed too much for the gospel? And Livingston got mad. And here's what he said in response. He said, people talk of the sacrifice I have made and spending so much of my life in Africa, away with the word sacrifice, he said. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this be only for a moment, he said. And I love this, he goes on. He says, there is one safe and happy place and that is in the will of God. Why, why would a person do that? Why would he do it? How could he endure a lifetime like that? Here it is. Again, he tells us in his own words. Livingston said, without Christ, not one step, but with him, anywhere. We have a great need for Christ and we have a great Christ for our need. Let's end here. What about the Amish in Lancaster, Pennsylvania? What about that day in 2006 when Charles Roberts IV parked his milk truck outside the schoolhouse, walked inside, zip-tied 10 little girls, lined them up by the chalkboard, and executed them one by one. On that very day, what did that community of Amish Jesus followers do? They didn't file a lawsuit. 
They didn't start a campaign. They didn't let bitterness and hatred take root in their hearts. But in the moments after this happened, I'm talking as the bodies of these precious little girls are being carried out of the schoolhouse before their eyes and a community is gathering in shock. One of the grandfathers of one of these little girls had the audacity to speak up and to say in that moment, we must not think evil of this man. How can you say that? How can on that very day, just a couple hours later, how can they go track down Charles Roberts' family and embrace his wife in their arms and embrace his kids in their arms and they would go on to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for that family. And then later on when Charles Roberts was buried, can you imagine what his wife and kids must have been feeling as they're grieving this horrific unspeakable loss and the the media just descend on it like an absolute circus And they're just being invaded by press everywhere and they can't process. And it's this moment that looks like it's gonna be a disaster for this family. And yet who stepped in? Keep in mind the Amish, they they don't like having their picture taken. It's a thing. But they came. And they stood directly in front of the cameras so that if you Google it, the only pictures that you'll find of that day are the Amish lined up in front of the cameras. So all you can see is them so that that family could have the peace to grieve and to process and to pray. How could these people carry a cross like that on the hardest day of their lives? Of course, the press that was there, you know, this was a story all over the world, this story of radical love and compassion and forgiveness that ran on every news station in the country. And if you listen to the news reports, if you go on YouTube and look it up, you'll often hear the reporters say something like, well, they just represent the best in humankind. Just look at these Amish and, and, and man, look at, they're just, they're the best of us. They remind us of the, the goodness of mankind, how we just have to care for each other. And yet, one of the books that was written by a survivor of this tragedy disagreed with that. Rather, the author said, at the heart of this was not some kind of intrinsic fundamental human goodness. At the heart of it was that the Amish clung to a faith in a man who died for his enemies, a man who had died for them. So, I guess that's what makes a person carry a cross. He died for you. Will you follow him to the cross? And we get to follow him to the cross every week together in this moment here. Jesus said this about the cross that he carried on the night that he knew he was headed to die for you and for me. Paul writes this. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. For you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
And so let's follow him to the cross together. I'm gonna give you a few moments to just walk to the cross with Jesus and to thank him for what he has done for you and receive this bread on your own and then I'll pray and we'll receive the cup together. King Jesus, we're here because we do believe that you are alive and you're actually hearing us and that you are really the one true king. And that of all things, you died on a cross for us. And I'm thankful, Lord, that when you got onto Peter there and you said, get behind me, Satan, you weren't saying, hey, get out of here. You were saying, fall in line, just step step behind me, just come with me, let me lead. And that's our desire today, Lord. You know how often we try to get ahead of you, but we're here and we're falling in line and we wanna follow you to the cross, God. So fill us up so that we can be poured out this week in the same way that you were poured out for us. We are thankful that your word tells us that very rarely would anybody die for somebody else. Although, you know, if it was a good person, somebody might possibly dare to die, but that God, you have shown your love for us in this that while we were still sinners in rebellion against us, in rebellion against you, your son, King Jesus, the Messiah, died on a cross for us. And so for that today, God, we praise you. You are our only hope. Help us to follow well. It's in Jesus' name that all God's people said, amen. This is the blood of Christ. Let's stand and worship our King together, church. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.